You're listening to the Forefront Church Podcast in New York City, where our vision is to see lives, neighborhoods, and our city renewed through Jesus. Well, all right, good morning, everybody. I want to start off by saying I'm very proud of myself today. It is my fourth time here with you in Brooklyn, and I got up out of the belly of Atlantic Terminal this morning without having to use GPS, map, anything. I'm, I'm a Brooklyner now, right? Other than I'm like 75 years old, but other than that. <laughs> well, I'm so glad to be here. Uh, it's always a joy to join you guys. I'm supposed to share my story with you today about how I came to meet Jesus and what that means for me 22 years later. Um, I became a Christian in 1993 while I was incarcerated at Allen Crest Detention Center, a juvenile detention center in Beaver County, Pennsylvania. My life up to that point had been lived in outright rebellion against the Protestant ethic that my parents had raised me inside of. I'd been involved in the drug culture for years at that point. And somewhere along the way in my addiction, I don't really know when exactly it was, but my addiction became unmanageable. And I crossed this boundary where my addiction at the time, it was just recreational. At some point, it started to become criminal, and I started to get into a lot of trouble, and I just couldn't get out. I wanted nothing at all to do with my parents' religion, their narrow, weak, and superstitious, flavorless way of life. And of course, years later, on the other side of belief now, I see that's not the Christian faith at all. It's just the way I perceived it at the time. I still don't even know why something in my heart came to a breaking point in the winter of 1993 there in one of my cell when late one evening one of the guards decided to talk to me about Jesus. For some reason at that very moment, at the bottom of bottoms, I was able to turn to God and open a door inside of myself and let him in. And what I discovered was that God had actually been there for me all along. I had just buried him beneath many fossilized layers of complexity and guilt and shame and concepts about things like sin and holiness and love that I never fully understood. So I did, as they say down south, I got saved. I got redeemed. Praise the Lord. I had a salvation experience. A preacher's son who spent years in various institutions that barely graduated from high school, who found Jesus and started an internship while being employed as a janitor at a church and ended up getting a scholarship to go to Bible college because his conversion experience was so amazing. That was my life. My post-conversion life was a very exciting, exciting time. After I got out of college, I joined the staff again at that same church on the pastoral staff, and I shared my story in churches and colleges and youth groups and all kinds of places all over the place. My story was celebrated. I was a walking example of what Jesus Christ could do in a human life. We love to hear Redemption stories like this as Christians, don't we? There are miraculous stories like this that are like borderline fairy tales. They're so strange that God can do something like this in a human life. We all know the stories. There are many of them. The town drunk who comes to the altar one Sunday morning smelling like piss and bourbon and he gets saved. 
shows up to church the following week dressed in his Sunday best with his family that had prayed for him for so long. The confused college graduate who hates their career in business even though they're succeeding at it. And they hear a sermon about compassion that changes their life. And they drop out of the business world altogether and they cross a sea and become a missionary. The heroin addict who can't seem to get clean and yet they are miraculously cured by their vice, by the touch of a healer's hand during a prayer. The unfaithful spouse who has a revelation of God's love and finally sees family for what it really is, turning their back on a life spent on momentary pleasures. We love stories like these as Christians, redemption stories. They pique our interest because it shows us what God is capable of doing in people if people will reach in his direction. My story was just like one of those stories. I was lost, I was found, the fatted calf was roasted, and there was a party. I enjoy redemption stories like this. The way that I enjoy cupcakes. How many of you like cu cupcakes? Raise your hands. The rest of you who don't, aren't raising your hands are just liars. <laughs> Everybody loves cupcakes. But specifically about cupcakes, what I like are the tops of the cupcakes, where the frosting is. I eat that part, and then I usually twist off that bottom part and just chuck it into the garbage. I don't like the bottom part. It's flavorless. It doesn't have the flavor of the top. It's just kind of bland. It doesn't have any real color to it. I discard it, but I like the top. This metaphor of a cupcake is very similar to how my story has evolved over the past 22 years. The past 22 years for me have been about the bottom part of the cupcake in my faith. The frosting is just where it began. The story goes on. I wish I could stand before you today and say that my Christian life now is still all fatted calves and frosting, but it isn't. The Jesus that I know and follow today, the God that I cling to for dear life, is still the same God who saved me, but I've grown to see him as something even far more amazing than he was when I was first redeemed. I've grown to see him as a God who is more about the bottom than he is about the top. And that's the story that I want to share with you today, what God has done now that all the frosting is gone, if you will. And I'm not talking about my hair either when I say that. I have been a Christian ever since that miraculous day in 1993. And yet sometimes it's very hard to tell. Were you to see me in certain meetings at my job, you could ask Ben or Jen. Were you to see me at certain meetings at my job, you would fail to see any evidence of Jesus Christ living in me at all. And I work at a church, so that's kind of strange. My life even seems to slip backwards for entire seasons of time where I feel completely lost. I feel empty inside. I sometimes even have doubts about the existence of the God who saved me in 1993. Epictetus, the Greek sage and Stoic philosopher, said, speaking of the human condition, one of my favorite quotes, you are but a little soul carrying about a corpse. And my faith feels that way a lot of the time. <laughs> Don't you feel encouraged this morning? 
Doesn't that make you feel warm and excited? The truth is, though, is that God is vibrantly alive and bright in me. But even today, still, he is buried beneath the layers of my humanity that I continue adding after years and years and years in my life. Because that is what it is to be human. And that is what it is for a human being to connect with the divine. And it is in reconciling these two opposites in my life that continues to bring me back to Jesus again and again over the years, where my faith looks a lot less like certainty and a lot more like a wrestling match, an ongoing argument with my beloved, capital B. It forever perplexes me that Jesus has chosen to make a home in me because most of the time that home is extremely dysfunctional. Most days when I wake up in the morning and I look in the mirror, and I'm just being really honest with you today, most days when I wake up and I look in the mirror in the morning, I stare at my reflection angry about my life. I wonder why I do what I do with my life because for the most part, I don't really think that Christianity works that well. And I'm in a profession where people expect me to tell them that it is the answer to all their problems. And of course, I don't really mean that I don't think that Christianity works that well. What I'm trying to say is that what you and I call faith here in the West, I don't think that that works that well. What you and I call faith here in the West, I'm not all too sure that's the faith that Jesus is really calling us to. Forgive me if that discourages you or angers you this morning. I see there's some instruments lying around the seats. Please don't throw one at me. Um, but I'm sorry if that frustrates you this morning to hear me say that. If so, you probably haven't been a Christian for very long. Or you are swept up in some kind of unrealistic fantasy that has very little to do with what faith actually is. Let me explain. You know, the biggest sales pitch of the Christian faith is that it changes us more so than all the other options out there can. It's presented to us as a kind of miracle drug for the soul. We hit bottom, we look up, Jesus is there reaching down into the well for us. We take his hand, he lifts us out of the well, we get baptized, and it's like, oh my God, all the lights came on. This is what I was always missing. We look at life for what it really is. The veil has been lifted and we see that all along it was God that we were missing in our lives. It's an incredible experience. One of the most quoted passages about finding Jesus in the New Testament, you don't even have to have it on the screen in order to quote it. We all know it. It says, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Another passage says this. We know that anyone who is born of God does not sin. But we do, don't we? Should we do a show of hands on that one? <laughs> Another passage says this. Jesus is speaking in this passage, and he says, I have come that you might have life, and life even more abundant. If we're really Christians, if we're really people of faith, 
if we're really following and trusting Jesus. I mean, don't these passages say we should be nothing like our old selves before we met Jesus? Isn't that what they say? If we're truly Christians, if we're truly following Jesus, people should be able to see that about us, right? We shouldn't be so easily duped into sin. In fact, that passage takes the stakes even higher. We shouldn't sin at all. If we're truly Christians, if we're truly following Jesus, we should be happier people, right? Shouldn't our lives be filled with abundance and goodness and godliness? I mean, isn't that what these passages mean? That's what sold me on this in the first place. And maybe that's what sold you on it too. It's why so many of us are addicted to the very potent narcotic of Western Christian self-improvement that promises us things like abundance and life change and happiness. We believe that at some point, all of the bad in us, all of the stuff that we don't like about ourselves, our compulsions, our desires, our persistence in error will one day be gone when we wake up in the morning because at some point along the way, we got close enough to Jesus and bing, he just took all the bad stuff away. And yet we wake up every morning and we look in the mirror and we see the same people there. We're not free from sin. We're not truly happy. Our lives don't feel abundant. What does all of this mean? Here's a question that will both clarify and possibly destroy your reason for being a Christian. If Jesus were to appear to you in this room right now and look into your eyes and thoughtfully say to you, I want you to know that if you follow me for 50 more years, that you will reach the end of your life seeing very little change in all the areas of yourself that you want me to change. How many of us in this room would continue following him? we'd probably look for something else. And our answer to that question betrays our true motives for why we follow Jesus Christ. I don't know why we do it, but why is it that we here in the West have turned Jesus into a self-help mascot? Since when did we start clinging to Jesus because he's the only one that can help us with our hang-ups and our behavior modification? Why have we made it about that? And this is why so many people give up on the Christian faith once the frosting is gone. Or worse yet, they just become these kind of corpse-like Christians who have lost all of their spark and all of their brightness. They're only hungry for dead things. This happens every day to thousands of people because we think that this entire faith thing is all about behavior modification that is compensated by heaven and the approval of God. That is what we have done to faith, to the message of Jesus here in the West. And that is poisonous. It is a lie 
even if it's not being told with ill intent. It's a falsehood. I can stand before you today and tell you that I have loved Jesus with all of my heart since that moment in 1993. And I am still in love with Jesus today. He means more to me than anything. And yet, internally speaking, who I really am inside, there is very little difference in who I am now and who I became in that moment in 1993 when I prayed that prayer and began following Jesus. Brennan Manning once said this, and I think he puts it perfectly. He writes, When I get honest, I admit I am a bundle of paradoxes. I believe and I doubt, I hope and I get discouraged, I love and I hate, I feel bad about feeling good, I feel guilty about not feeling guilty, I'm trusting and suspicious. I am honest and I still play games. Aristotle said, I am a rational animal. I say I am an angel with an incredible capacity for beer. To live by grace means to acknowledge my whole life story. The light side and the dark. Should my sin disgust me? Should your sin disgust you? Yes. Should we be striving to modify our behavior to be kinder, gentler, more self-sacrificing human beings that behave more like Jesus Christ? Yes, absolutely. But this is not why God loves us. This is not why God saves us in the first place. God loves us and God saves us because he is God and we are people. And these are our proper roles in this relationship. Christianity is not about behavior. It is about experiencing a deep love that changes behavior as that love is realized more and more, bit by bit, over long periods of time. God is inviting people into process-oriented grace. It's why the same author who wrote, anyone who is born of God does not sin, writes, we love him because he first loved us. In other words, my love for God, your love for God, our love for God, whether that is shown in worship or the praying of prayers or the giving of charity or even good old-fashioned Christian behavior, can only ever become a reality for us as we understand the depth of God's love for us as we are right now, not as we think we should be. We can only love him by understanding that he first loved us. We cannot love him on our own by willpower by conjuring it up, not even by just wanting to be better. That's not how it works. Our love for God is not an initiation. It is a response. It's a response to his love for us. And this is a very different message than the message we often hear coming from the Western church. A church that is so addicted to frosting 
and yet God is all about the bottom of the cupcake. God is all about the bottom in us, the stuff that isn't sweet, the stuff that is uninteresting, the stuff we want to discard that we don't think is really the good part. That's the real us. That's the part of us that God lives in and God, that God is in love with. When I first got off of narcotics and I got my act cleaned up and I had paid my dues and I was released from juvie, as a part of my probation, I was placed on house arrest to complete my sentence. And I had to wear this ankle monitor that would dial the police if I wandered beyond the perimeter of our property. I truly was a prisoner in my own home. And so my days were spent um, in, in the house and in the yard. I had things I needed to do, chores and whatnot, but it was also great because I could eat what I wanted when I wanted it. I could wear what I wanted when I wanted, and I could watch cable television again. And yes, those of you in the room that are young, there was a time that not all families had cable. Like I said, I'm 75 years old. This was back. <laughs> but I had cleaned up my act. I was off drugs. I had severed all of my old connections. But I was still a cigarette smoker. I smoked a pack a day. And I was unable to quit. I wanted to quit. I just couldn't. And smoking in my family was always kind of anathema. I'm from a pastor's family. And my, it's exactly what you think it is. My dad preaches in, in a suit and my mom plays the organ. It's the exact image that you have in your mind. That's, that's how I grew up. Grew up. And, um, you know, my mom and dad have never smoked a cigarette. They've never had a sip of alcohol. They are very pure, very holy people. And at this point, they had just accepted, well, our son is off of drugs compared to what he was doing before smoking is tolerable. And so every Saturday, it was one of my chores to cut the grass. And one Saturday, while I was out in the yard cutting the grass, being very careful not to go across the boundary so that the cops wouldn't come, um, I was cutting the grass. My mom was at work, and my dad went to the grocery store to pick up the weekly groceries for our family. And my dad at the time was a pastor at a very large church in a very small town. My dad worked at this church that had over a thousand people in a town of 10,000. Like, that's nuts. It's 10% of the town. And so everybody knew my father. And my father knew everybody, even the people that didn't go to the church. He knew the shop owners. He knew the people that ran businesses. He knew people in politics. Everybody knew Reverend Phipps. He was respected in our community. People listened to what he had to say. And so my dad's going to this grocery store in this small town where everyone knows him. And he goes into the parking lot and he gets out of the car and, hello, Reverend Phipps from across the parking lot. How are you doing? See you this Sunday, sir. Hello, Reverend Phipps, as he walks in the doors and he starts filling up his grocery cart as he's going around the aisles and gets all of his groceries, and then he thinks to himself, I think I'm going to go down the, that aisle that's always down on the left. And my dad never went down to that aisle that's always on the left because that's where they sold the sinful things. Tobacco, snuff, cigarettes, cigars, what have you. And my dad went down to this um, aisle at the end of the other aisles, and he had all of his groceries, and 
He began to put them on the counter. And then he asked the lady behind the counter, is there a, is there a brand of uh, cigarettes called Newports? She's like, yeah, sir. Yeah, there's a brand of cigarettes called Newports. He'd never purchased cigarettes before. And then he noticed that the cigarettes came in these larger containers. that You didn't have to buy them a pack at a time. And he said, well, what's that down there? And she said, uh, that's called a carton of cigarettes, sir. And he said, well, I'll take, I'll take one of those cartons of Newports. And she brought them up. And after she had rang out all the groceries, she stuck them in the top of the grocery bag. And they put his bags in the cart. And my dad headed out to the parking lot and everyone's saying, hello, Reverend Phipps. Hi, Reverend Phipps, see you this Sunday. And my dad's got this carton of Newports sticking out of the top of his grocery bag. And I can only imagine people having like a mental meltdown, like, oh my God, the pastor started smoking. This whole town's gonna go under, it's the end of the world. And my dad got back from the grocery store and put the bags of groceries on the kitchen table like he always did, and he went in to get a shower, and I came in from cutting the grass because I was thirsty, and I knew that he had come back, and so I was hoping there was like Pepsi or Coke in the fridge, and um, I looked over at the kitchen table, and I saw these groceries, and I saw this carton of Newports sticking out of the top of the bag. And I broke down in my kitchen that day in tears and realized what my dad had just done for me and what he was trying to convey to me. My dad wanted me to know that my relationship with him was more important than his reputation. My dad wanted me to know that his love for me was more important than me smoking cigarettes. And I think the way that my dad is in that story is a near-perfect picture of the heart of God for you and I. The way that God looks at people. The point of the story is not the cigarettes, uh, whether I smoked them or I didn't. And to be honest, <laughs> in trajectory with this whole message, every time I see someone smoking, I want to French kiss them and suck the smoke out of their lungs. <laughs> like, I want a cigarette every morning. <laughs> and, uh, they'll just kill you, man. I mean, they're just bad for you. So, but the point of the story is not the cigarettes, whether I smoked them or I didn't, whether they shortened my life or my didn't. They didn't. Did my dad hate smoking? Yes. Did my parents hate cigarettes? Yes. Would me smoking cigarettes shorten the life of their only child? Absolutely. Did they tarnish my father's reputation as one of the town's holy men when his son would get a pass from the ankle monitor on Sundays to go to church and stand out in front of the church and smoke a cigarette? Yes, that tarnished my father's reputation along with everything else I did. But none of that stuff was the point. 
the point that my dad was spiritual enough to understand was that I understood that he loved me the same whether I smoked or not and that if by grace and chance I could see that, it would strengthen my relationship with my father. And out of that relationship, he could continue to lead me and parent me into a more successful life. The easiest thing in the world would have been for my father to say, we do not have cigarettes in this house. You're not a minor anymore. Act like an adult. Quit smoking or get out of here. And it would have cut me off from the very relationship that had the power to help me change. And guys, this is exactly the way God looks at people. We all have cigarettes. And by cigarettes, I don't mean cigarettes. I mean the stuff in us that we hate about ourselves, that no one knows about, that God never took away when we prayed that original prayer. Your cigarette might be a sense of low self-worth that causes you to share your bed too easily. Maybe your cigarette is cheating people in tiny little fractions and markups in your work and your business and you're getting a little bit richer by cheating people without them knowing it. Maybe your cigarette's an addiction to pornography or maybe it's just being a terrible friend to the people in your life. Of course, I'm not talking about things like if you're murdering people and hiding portions of them in your freezer or something like that. I'm talking about this stuff that people don't see, that we still are, that we have always been. Our compulsions, our leanings, our urges, the default ways that we live that we hate about ourselves as people who are in love with Jesus and we just can't seem to get clean of them. We all have our cigarettes. And the greatest loss is if we think that God is waiting on us to get those things completely under control before we can call his house home. The greatest lie a human being can believe is that a relationship with God is merited through behavioral reform. The greatest evil in the church is that we can be tempted to make this way of thinking the system that fuels and unites us. Being united by all that we are against instead of all that we are for. It is an empty formula that only produces death even if we label that death as life. God wants us to eat the entire cupcake. The icing is good. The icing is sweet. It is delicious. It is wonderful. It's got those little sprinkles on it. But there is another part. The bottom of us. The rest of the story. Dealing with and living with and inviting God to be a part of the bottom in us. When I was a younger pastor, I placed such a strong emphasis in my ministry on that initial 
redemption experience for people. I remember I used to end every sermon with, everybody close your eyes, everybody bow your heads. If you're not here today and you don't know Jesus, raise your hand, and they would pray, and that was my goal. That was the reason for all my preaching and all that I did as a young pastor, because somehow I thought that would fix everything for people. And what I've learned over the years is that that doesn't fix anything. It's not intended to. That initial experience is not intended to do that. Faith is not a prescription that fixes people. It is a doorway into process. Salvation is not a prescription that fixes you. It is a doorway into the process of redemption. The top of the cupcake might be how we enter but it's not, intended. It's, not for, it's not intended for us to continue feasting on. Faith is really about a long walk, a journey filled with dizzying highs and deafening lows, and God is living within us in all of it. God chooses to call everyday people his home. Augustine said, God is at home. We are abroad, and nothing could be closer to the truth. And that's the story that I wish I could have been telling people from the very beginning. But we live and we learn and we age and what we thought it was all about at the beginning isn't what we think it is about now. I can only imagine what I'll think about God in 20 years when I'm 95. (laughs) What does this mean for us today? Because I'd imagine we're all here today in uh, varying levels of the cupcake, if you will. Um, If you're a new Christian, and the lights just came on, and this is amazing and wonderful, savor that time, enjoy that time. Enjoy it, it's so good and so new and so life-giving. But don't expect it to stay that way forever. Maybe you've just come out of that phase in your life and you're thinking, wow, this was really cool for like four weeks and now I'm, wonder what Buddhism's like, you know. (laughs) Um, That's a good time. God's trying to get you to look at some deeper spots on yourself. Maybe you're like me and you've been doing this for years, many years. And for those of us that are very far removed from the salvation experience, and we've, I mean, I'm sure some of us really resonate with that looking in the mirror thing and thinking, I'm the same person I always was. Maybe it is a time for us to re-examine and just invite God into that. Maybe it's a time for us to start praying prayers that have a lot less to do with talking and more to do with listening. Maybe it's time for us to see someone that's a professional in the area of therapy and begin to talk about some of those things courageously. Maybe it's time to be more vulnerable in our small groups. Maybe it's time to be more faithful in things like prayer and a regular time of devotion. Or we just allow God to shape us instead of trying to convince him to do what we want him to do for us. We all fall into different areas. 
But my hope and my prayer that as we leave this week and we go back into our lives of desktops and escalators and elevators and spreadsheets and waiting tables and whatever we do, it's my hope and my prayer that we would begin to realize that the Christian faith is about process. It's as slow as molasses, and that is sacred and holy and good, and we can take joy in that. We can rest in that. God, God loves your cupcake, and I'll end with that. Let's stand. Almighty God, um, we are complex beings. Every one of us in this room orient toward the divine in a different way. Um, My prayer today, God, is for those who are tired and confused. Those who are in this place who are just going through the motions of Christianity because that's what's always been done. God, I ask that you bring dead things to life, that you cause beauty to rise from ashes. God, I ask that you would restore the joy of our salvation and renew a proper spirit that looks at you correctly in us. God, I pray for everyone here who is new at this faith thing that you would show them fantastic things about life and the nature of reality and how much you love people, that they would cherish this time, that it would be a time of joy, a time of acceptance that you are in love with the world and that you are in charge. God, as we leave this place this week, May we be people that are less ashamed and more honest. May we be people that are trying less to be more like God's and trying to be more like the human Jesus. We thank you for your son who makes this possible. In his name we pray, amen.